Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. Welcome to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. I'm Paul Sweeney, alongside my co-host, Matt Miller. Every business day, we bring you interviews from CEOs, market pros, and Bloomberg experts, along with essential market-moving news. Find the Bloomberg Markets Podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts and at Bloomberg.com slash podcast. Now let's turn to one of the other uh, large stories today, a Bloomberg exclusive that China planning to broaden a ban on the use of iPhones in sensitive departments uh, to government-backed agencies and state companies in China. Uh, Anurag Rana is our uh, senior tech analyst with Bloomberg Intelligence, and he joins us by Zoom now. Um, Anurag, it sounds like this latest story is essentially expanding uh, the scope of these restrictions. They were already banned? Well, they weren't banned, it sounds like, but it sounds like for some reason the markets believe that the scope is much broader than it was yesterday, the Wall Street Journal report coming out that, you know, people were not being asked not to bring their, their iPhones in. Is that is that right here? So I'll, I'll tell you, I talked to the analysts in Asia and they basically said, listen, if you are a Chinese government official, you are not you were, it was basically bad manners for you to even show your iPhone in the office. So you ha- I mean, this is just a, this was not to be used at work at all and under any circumstances. So this is just an extension of that. But to be very frank, I mean, this, the, the, you know, financially, I would say people, government official not buying the iPhone is not going to be material for Apple. But the question really is not so much about that. The question is, is the close relationship that China has had with Apple or the Apple has had with China, are we seeing some kind of a dent in that? I think that is the biggest question here because, as everybody knows, Apple's very dependent on China for all its parts, all the assembly. Um, and frankly, you know, if you were to look at all the U.S. companies, Apple's done so much better than anybody else since even the tariff war begins. Apple was basically insulated from all of that. Well, and Apple shares, I guess, reacting here down 3.7%. But, I mean, do we have any indication that this would spread not just to the, I guess, 20% of sales, roughly, that China, uh, that Apple does in China, um, but also to the manufacturing end? Or is that just kind of the market's thinking ahead? Yeah, I mean, that's really what the big, uh, you know, the danger here is, you know, them, nobody, you know, few government officials not buying the iPhone is not going to move the needle at all for, for, for Apple. But the question really is, you know, are they going to try to restrict other things? We're going to have, you know, tariffs. It's all those things that are coming into play. But, uh, you know, we'll find out, I would say, in the next six to 12 months, if there is any change in relationship. Apple's done a phenomenal job of um, its relationship with China. It employs millions of people in China, not directly through its uh, factories. Um, and, um, you know, it, it, as you said, it's 19% of Apple's revenue. So it is very over the, overly dependent on China for a lot of things. So, you know, I'm sure uh, they're hoping that none of that changes because of uh, uh, recent events uh, between the U.S. and China. Apple shares, um, not doing poorly, they're up 35 36% year mm. to date. 
but they have dipped below their 100-day moving average right now, trading at $176 even. What do you think about, um, about the stock, Anurag? See, when you look at it, I think a lot will depend on this overhang now, because next week we're going to see the new iPhone coming out, the iPhone 15. Um, you know, we think it's going to do well, but at the same time, now we have another uh, unnecessary cloud on on top of this stock. So we have to figure out what this really means. Um, I do not know whether uh, when Apple announces the iPhone, if they're going to make any comment on uh, any of these uh, news breaks, because I think as long as this uh, overhang is there, um, you know, Apple will have a hard time in the in the near future. How has Apple typically interacted with the uh, the Chinese government? It's been amazing. I mean, they, they, they have done so much better than any other company in the Western world. Um, they were not affected by any of the bans. They are very, you know, widely welcomed there. In fact, I, you know, one of the things we saw last year, uh, there was some issue with the, with the production of the pro model because of COVID-19 restrictions in China. And uh, that led to some, uh, you know, shortfall of shipments. But frankly, right, a, right about a month, month and a half after that, China changed their COVID policies. Now, I'm not saying they did it because of Apple, but they have been very friendly to Apple, and Apple's been very nice to them. What's the biggest opportunity for Apple? Is it India? It is China, actually. From a mathematical point of view, uh, India is going to be very long-term because the, you know, the, the GDP per capita uh, for, uh, for India is only $2,500, while in, in China it's about close to $13,000. Uh, just quickly here, Anurag, because uh, we only have about a minute left, what should we expect next week from the uh, announcement of these new products? Is there anything that could really be a game changer? Uh, I think the, the question really is the highest end model that they have. It's the iPhone Pro Max model. Um, I'm looking for the biggest thing we are looking for is, you know, what's the price of that product? Because that price has remained constant for the last three years. If there is any changes to that price, I mean, that really does wonders to the iPhone sales for the next 12 months because uh, that model itself is supposed to have a very high-end camera, much better than anything Apple's done uh, in the past. Simone's an Android user. No, I'm, I'm sorry a, to say. I'm an iPhone user in part because of the uh, because of the camera. Well, and also because I moved abroad and had to get an iPhone. I can't remember the actual rationale, but... Uh, Android users, I feel like they spoil the fun for, for just teasing family John Tucker, and, and group chats. Who is an Android He has user. a green bubble. John Tucker has a green bubble. Goodness. I thought, you know, that, that sounded like an insult, but then Matt <laughs> went on to explain, you know, Mr. Spock would have an Android. I think Mr. Spock would be an Android. Which I take as an attack on my ears, Simone. No, it's because you're a very technical, technically what? savvy man. Oh, All I right, uh, Anurag Rana, thanks very much for joining us. Hi, I'm Ron Krzyzewski, Chairman and CEO of Stiefel. Financial Advisors, if you're not growing your practice, you're losing market share. Stiefel is a growing, entrepreneurial, advisor-centric firm built for successful advisors like you. Imagine having the resources of the largest wirehouses and the support of the boutique shops, but none of the bureaucracy to get in the way of you serving your clients. At Stiefel, it's your business, your book, your clients. I always tell the advisors we're recruiting, I want you to come to Stiefel and double or triple your business. Most of them laugh and shake their heads, but I'm serious. Don't take it from me. Take it from Stiefel's number one finish in J.D. Power's 2023 U.S. Financial Advisor Satisfaction Study. So, there's a reason why 148 financial advisors joined Stiefel last year. Come join us and find out why Stiefel is the firm where success meets success. Visit www.choosestifel.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. 
Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. You're listening to The Team. Catch our live program, Bloomberg Markets, weekdays at 10 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg.com, the iHeartRadio app, and the Bloomberg Business app. Or listen on demand wherever you get your podcasts. Let's get over to our uh, legal reporter, Ava Benny Morrison, right now. She's at Courthouse here in New York to talk about breaking news on the FTX case. Uh, we have seen across the Bloomberg terminal that Ryan Salome, um, formerly of FTX. He's planning to plead guilty, it sounds like. Exactly. Uh, he uh, was an executive along with SBF, with Sam Bankman-Fried, and it looks like he's going to plead guilty criminal charges over the collapse of that cryptocurrency exchange. Uh, Ava, what do we know? We know that uh, Ryan Salome has been in negotiations with uh, prosecutors for a while now. Um, today he is going to front the federal courthouse in downtown Manhattan and enter a plea of guilty uh, to criminal charges. Uh, we don't know yet what exactly what those charges are or whether that means he will also be a um, cooperating witness and agree to testify against Bankman Freed or not. Yeah, what does this mean for the potential cases against some of the other players in this, you know, Bankman Freed, some of his other former colleagues, Gary Wang, Carolyn Ellison, Shad Singh? Um, you know, it, it, what do we understand and what does your reporting suggest about his willingness to cooperate with prosecutors there? Well, from our reporting um, and talking to different sources, um, the sense we've got is um, Ryan has been um, digging his heels in about cooperating uh, with prosecutors. Uh, so we understand that um, this will more than likely be a plea deal. He will agree to plead guilty to certain charges, but uh, he doesn't want to testify against Sam Bankman-Fried. Uh, and prosecutors actually um, made suggested that uh, in a court filing um, a few weeks ago, saying that Ryan Salome had said he would um, uh, take the fifth if he was called to testify. Um, worth noting here that prosecutors already have three former executives um, from FTX and Alameda Research, Caroline Ellison, Gary Wang and Nishad Singh, um, who have pleaded guilty to their conduct as well and have agreed to cooperate with prosecutors. What do we know about how much money these guys have uh, or, or, or gals in terms of Caroline Ellison? You know, I think it's interesting that they're able to mount these legal uh, defenses and they're not using state appointed um, lawyers. So do they have still a ton of cash stashed away? That's a really good question. Uh, we know that um, these some of these executives received huge loans from Alameda Research. We're talking tens of millions of dollars here. Um, but some of the executives like Nishad Singh, who have previously pleaded guilty, um, have also agreed to forfeit some of their assets, um, including property. Um, so it's unclear, but it's a really good question. They're not using public defenders, they're using private attorneys. Um, so it'd be interesting to see you know, just how much money they still have and whether that could potentially be clawed back um, by the um, FTX bankruptcy estate. 
Ava, really interesting stuff. Thank you for staying across this. This is Ava Benny Morrison. She's our legal reporter for Bloomberg News at the courthouse in Manhattan. You're listening to The Tape. Catch our live program, Bloomberg Markets, weekdays at 10 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio, the TuneIn app, Bloomberg.com, and the Bloomberg Business app. You can also listen live on Amazon Alexa from our flagship New York station. Just say, Alexa, play Bloomberg 1130. Well, now it's our time of the Thursday where we talk to Barry Ritholtz, our, our Bloomberg opinion columnist, founder of Ritholt Wealth Management and host of Masters in Business. Uh, love chatting with you always, uh, Barry. And you have a, a bit of an interesting uh, take out. Uh, you qu- quote William Goldman, uh, the scriptwriter for Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kids, All the President's Men, Marathon Man, etc. Nobody knows. Princess Bride. Princess Bride. There's too <laughs> it's many. The best of I, all I of couldn't those. get through all of them. There's a laundry list, Marathon Man, etc. A- anyway, point being, nobody knows anything. So Wall Street doesn't know anything either, Barry. Well, well, let me give you a little context about what led Goldman to write that in his book Adventures in the Screen Trade. So there was a couple of guys named uh, Lucas and Spielberg shopping uh, a movie around. They, they couldn't get it made. And it, and it was called Raiders of the Lost Ark. And, and everybody turned them down on it. And not long after that, Star, or, or before that, Star Wars was another film that all the major studio execs um, turned down. And, and I kind of was reminded of this. Because very quietly in, in the midst of uh, Barbenheimer, John Wick 4 snuck out and did nearly half a billion dollars in box office, which is a huge number for a fourth sequel of just a shoot 'em up. And I did a little research and, and discovered nobody in, in Hollywood wants to make the first John Wick film. And it's a reminder that experts who are thinking about the future really have very little expertise as to what's going to happen next quarter, next year, next decade. We, we, nobody knows anything. That, I mean, this reminds me of the R-Star debate that we're having. It seems right. beyond ridiculous. I mean, it's fine if you want to talk about whether or not the Fed's going to raise rates or cut. But when you get into that kind of unknowable, it just is... Uh, an exercise in futility. Purely theoretical. And and we will be having that discussion this afternoon with John Williams at 3.30 p.m. on Bloomberg Television. But, but can I take you to the Wall Street angle, Barry? Because we had this great sure. story out uh, earlier this week, I think yesterday, I think. Um, Wall Street's stock market calls vary by firm and by floor. And uh, just <laughs> illustrating perhaps your point, the uh, sell-side research teams are far more negative on U.S. equities than the investment managed teams. You can see this even playing out within uh, Morgan Stanley. So how do you how do you live in this in this sort of world if you are um, if you are a trader? So so first, it's really important to separate the signal from the noise. When I was on a trading desk, my habit was to create a reading list, but not read anything until after four o'clock. Because if you read something early in the morning, it very often would influence how you traded. And in fact, there have been academic studies that have looked as to how sunny or rainy it is in New York City. And the actual weather has an impact on whether or not 
markets trade up a little bit or trade down a little bit. Your your psyche is, is so malleable in ways that you're just wholly unaware of that a nice day means you're more optimistic and hey, it's beautiful out and you tend to be more of a buyer. So so you really have to know yourself. You really have to understand what's driving your decision making. And that's really, really difficult for people to do. We, we are just very much unaware of our internal thought process. We, we think we're making independent decisions, but lots of little influences affect how we invest, how we trade, how we make decisions. Was John Wick 4 any good? Did you watch 4? I haven't seen 4 yet. I, I loved the first one, and I found the second one very amusing. Um, I haven't seen 3 yet. What I kind of do is, like what I did with Guardians of the Galaxy, when the third one came out, I watched the first one, I watched the second one, and then we went to the movies to see the third one in three consecutive days. Uh, by the way, John Wick 5 already approved it, it it's going to be out in 2026 let me just put a little flesh on the bones as to how much money this film made so it was made independently the guys who were the choreographers and stuntmen for the matrix movies were the co-directors they had keanu reeves attached to this no one would make it so they made it as an independent film they self-funded it uh it cost 20 million dollars Today, the John Wick franchise has generated $2 billion between the box office, the streaming rights. There was a spin-off film. There was a television series, comic books, video games, $2 billion. They, they couldn't get anybody to green light a $20 million movie. It, it, and now turn around and let's apply this to investors. Which ETF? Which mutual fund? What's the Fed going to do? Where the mark, where's the market going to be? Instead of focusing on next month or next quarter, the one thing we knew, know is that over 10 and 20 year periods, we have a pretty good idea of what asset class returns are going to be. Here's what stocks return. Here's what bonds return. And people have to stop thinking about tomorrow and start thinking about, hey, what about my kids? What about my retirement? What about my grandkids? That's a way to defeat the nobody knows anything sort of uh, philosophy. You know, I've noticed... Uh, I've noticed here at work that a lot of people underestimate the allure of cars when it comes to, to selling clicks, for example. And the same is true in mm -hmm. movies, right? Because that's the part of the part of the um, equation that made John Wick such a big seller. He has a Boss 429 in the first one. Right. I think he has a Chevelle SS in the second one. And... I guess people who don't care about cars l really don't see the draw, but people who do are going to tune in for this kind of thing. Yeah, Matt's looking at me, and I'm kind of rolling my eyes because I have to say I, I don't know cars. I guess I, I have a hybrid. But, That's but, about but it. But in the John Wick movie, <laughs> the, the McGinty that drives the plot is a bunch of hoodlums um, see his Mustang and come to his house to steal it, not realizing... This is one of the most deadly hitmen in in film lore, and so that's what starts the whole. And process they kill his dog, of, right? And that I knew you'd take they this. They kill back his to dog, cars. which his recently deceased right. wife had given to him. It, it, it's right. just a great plot. Barry, thanks so much for joining us. Barry Ritholtz on John Wick and the Markets. Success is more than the final destination. It's a path you take one step at a time. It's discipline. It's teamwork. And it's the drive and passion inside of us that comes before all recognition. 
It's what Stiefel's been doing for over 130 years. Quietly, yet strategically, Stiefel's become one of the fastest growing wealth management and investment banking firms in the country. Our financial advisors go beyond traditional wealth management to provide clients with direct access to one of the industry's largest equity research franchises and a leading middle market investment bank because success is the drive it takes to keep climbing, the passion to keep investing, the best of each of us made better by the best in all of us. And that is where success meets success. Start your journey at Stiefel.com. That's S-T-I-F-E-L.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code Radio20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. You're listening to The Team. Catch our live program, Bloomberg Markets, weekdays at 10 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg.com, the iHeartRadio app, and the Bloomberg Business app. Or listen on demand wherever you get your podcasts. I am excited to welcome the Mach-E sales manager for the Ford Motor Company. Michael Sago joins us to talk about um, what's going on in this uh, in this quickly growing industry with really one of, I think, the first standout products uh, in American EVs. Michael, thanks so much for joining us. What uh, what does sales look like now for the Mach-E? I mean, I, I started seeing a lot more of them last year, um, and they've become... Uh, They've become very present, at least in, in this region. Uh, how, many, how many do you sell in 2022 and how many do you want to sell in 2023? So we've uh, had great sales in the last couple of months. So we actually took a, a bit of downtime early in the year to revamp our production facilities to make sure that we could meet demand for the Mach-E. So what's great now is uh, a lot of those extra units that we've been able to produce are now out there in the market and uh, available for purchase and for customers to get their hands on. Uh, we're also hearing about the Mustang Mach-E rally as well, which The Verge actually called uh, the Ford's off-roadiest performance EV yet. Tell us about the, the uh, tell us all about what this is about. <laughs> Love it. So really excited to write another chapter in Mustang's uh, nearly six decade storied history with the Mustang Mach-E rally. Uh, so as you know, it's it's a it's actually a four door SUV that's all electric seats, five passengers. And we've had that vehicle in market for a couple of years. And this new variant, the rally allows us to go off the pavement and confidently onto the dirt road. So this is a rally-inspired electric SUV with really aggressive rally styling all around and lots of extra capability built in. We've raised the vehicle uh, 25 millimeters. We have off-road tires on it. We have extra tu- extra special tuned suspension for, for off-roading. And this thing is going to be a beast. It's going to have at least 650 pound-feet of torque and do zero to 60 in under 3.5 seconds. We're just looking at pictures of it uh, there. Um, what what I instantly wonder is why isn't it called a Raptor? You know, because 
um, in the at least in the gas side of the business, uh, when Ford makes an off-road vehicle, at least in terms of the F-150 and the Bronco, if it's if it's the pinnacle of the uh, off-road offering, if it's the apex predator, you, you now have the Raptor brand. Great question. So this is definitely different from from a Raptor or a Bronco. This is the Mach-E Rally is not necessarily meant to be a rock crawler, but it's meant to perform really well at high speed on loose surfaces, similar to what a rally vehicle would do. And that's more the driving experience that we were benchmarking rather than that's than some slow, uh, precise rock crawling that you would use a Bronco or a Raptor to do. I mean, I, I use the Bronco or the Raptor for the Baja 1000. You know, I'm flying across the desert in that vehicle. Um, in fact, I was one of the first Raptor buyers in my neighborhood. Really? I got one back in 2014. Awesome. In fact, I had my Raptor uh, was built at the Rouge and hand delivered, believe it or not, the keys were given to me in the factory by Alan Mulally. Um, it dates me a little bit, but yeah, uh, I, I, I was a big, big fan of that vehicle. I still am. Um, when are these electric uh, off-road vehicles going to be on sale? When can I, if I put in my order now, or, or can I put in my order now, and when can I pick one up at the dealership? So order banks are not quite open yet, but we're going to begin production early next year, targeting January right now, and deliveries will begin shortly after that. So Call it a late Q1, early Q2. You should be able to get your hands on one of these. Price bump? What are you thinking? I'm looking already at the GT version of the Mach-E, and I'm bumping up against 60 grand. Is this going to put me over that? So it'll it'll be slightly over that. We're targeting an S, uh, MSRP of 65000 right now, but it's a very dynamic environment, as you know, and we're going to confirm pricing uh, closer to launch. Okay, other than Matt, who has, like, all the cars – um who's who's your target buyer here great question so what we're doing with with the rally is really bringing evs to folks that are adventure seekers and who value an active lifestyle so somebody who really wants great the best of both on-road and off-road somebody who wants this for their commute monday through friday but also wants to take an off the beaten path adventure on the weekends and wants to be able to do all that in the same vehicle so if you value technology and an exhilarating drive experience this is definitely the vehicle for you one of the questions i always have about have had about uh evs is um how i'm gonna be able to retrofit them later on you know because battery technology develops so quickly um with a gas vehicle uh if i say i have like a i don't know a boss 302 and i want to put in um you know uh uh, um, like a 447 in there, I can just pull out the engine and swap it. But it's much more difficult with a battery. What, what's your thought on how we're going to be able to deal with these 10, 20 years down the road? So uh, great question. One of the best things about Mustang is how enthusiastic our customers are about the brand. Uh, and we see that with Maki as well. We see a lot of customers that want to customize their vehicles. And we're definitely here for that. So we will have a full suite of accessories that will be available when we launch. And the other thing that's great about electric vehicles is we're able to do things over through over the air updates and different software 
uh, pieces that we weren't able to do before. So we can actually help you improve your vehicle uh, over the air. So hopefully makes that process even easier for you in the future. But that doesn't necessarily allow you to just kind of switch out your battery when the battery technology improves, does right. it? It's hard to get to. I imagine you'd have to take out the interior and I mean, if the battery's in the floor, it's a skateboard, right? So so battery swapping, you know, that, that'll be definitely a conversation for another day, but there are things we can do with different calibrations of of the of the engine through software that we can push through over the year updates to enhance performance things like our blue cruise 1.3 that we're going to launch with the rally you know has has been something that it that improves from from version to version so, so a lot of this is actually going to happen automatically for you in the future blue cruise is kind of like an automated driving or something that gets closer to that right exactly it's our hands-free driving software that's that's in all Mustang Mach-E's and Blue Cruise 1.3. Uh, one of the greatest improvements is for narrow lanes and curves. It's actually been in our internal tests has stayed in hands-free mode five times longer than Blue Cruise 1.0. Look, Michael, I've got to ask you about this because Ford and uh, its union discussions are, are so top of mind for markets right now. I know you're a marketing guy. Um, but that you you do really know about this vehicle. One of the concerns, I guess, from the union side has been that the automation of these production of EVs potentially, you know, puts them out of uh, out of work. You need far fewer people to build an electric. Vehicle. Exactly. I mean, has have you know? Does the production of the Maki and the Maki Rally, you know, does that require far far fewer people? Yeah. So that that's definitely uh, a question for for another day as well. Um, we're, we're excited about the rally and uh, we're excited for production to begin in January. All right. Uh, not the guy fair, to ask about point. UAW uh, negotiations. I had, I had to ask. I had <laughs> but to we ask. do have to ask those questions. <laughs> what about other um, versions? Do you have uh, any ideas about some other versions we could see of the Mustang Mach-E? Is this going to be something that where variants come out every couple of years? So great question and stay tuned for a few for details on the entire 24 model year mock mustang maki lineup uh but i do want to share with you one mentality that our team has adopted and it's called always on so through uh with social media with connected vehicle data that's aggregated and anonymized we're able to listen to customers in a much more real-time way than we ever have in the past this Mach-E rally was actually went from an idea in an email to an actual vehicle that you can drive in 16 months. And that's a process that could typically take three to four years yeah. at, at an automaker. So we're really excited about all the different variants that can come from this uh, in the future and really hope that you stay stay tuned for the full 24 model year Mustang Mach-E lineup, which will will be giving you more details yep. on soon. Michael, thanks so much for joining us. Really appreciate it. Michael Sago there, Mach-E sales manager at the Ford Motor Company. You're listening to The Tape. Catch our live program, Bloomberg Markets, weekdays at 10 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio, the TuneIn app, Bloomberg.com, and the Bloomberg Business app. You can also listen live on Amazon Alexa from our flagship New York station. Just say, Alexa, play Bloomberg 1130. Let's talk about Pernod Ricard right now. We have Alexander Ricard with us here, the CEO of the famed liquor maker uh, with us. Um, the brands are too numerous to mention. I grew up with, my mom has always tr 
had the Glenlivet around, uh, has always had it handy um, in a healthy way. And uh, I appreciate a lot of the, uh, uh, I grew up with absolute posters all over my wall. When I was a kid, it was the thing to, to find absolute ads and then to collect all of them. And to, I'm older than you, so you may not remember that, Simone. But Alexander, thanks so much for joining us. What, what, uh, what to you is the most important or the biggest growth driver of your business? Because you have so many brands, so many children to look after. Yeah, well, the, the, well, hopefully the, adults. Excuse me. Sorry. Go yeah, ahead. First yes. of all, adults. <laughs> yes. Absolutely. Listen, uh, the beauty is um, if you look at um, the way we grew over the last, let's say, 12 months, 85% of our growth uh, came from six different categories. That's the beauty of the industry. I mean, every single category has amazing brands amongst it that are growing. You mentioned some of them, by the way. Absolute, we've had an amazing year with Absolute Vodka globally. The brand grew 10%. You mentioned Glenlivet, one of the fastest growing single malts in the world, doing very well, by the way, in the US. I could name Jameson as well, which is mm. just flying off the shelves, uh, and it's great to see. But even other brands like Malibu and, and Kahlua, or even our cognac brand Martell. I did want to ask you about, do you love the Big Lebowski? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Because yeah. the dude is drinking white Russians the whole time. <laughs> and that's the first thing I think of when I look at Kahlua. And, and by the way, in the U.S., we have a great absolute martini uh, combo uh, that worked very well last October, November, December, ahead of uh, the festive period. It's just amazing. Oh, you know, one of the big um, areas of demand for you and the large share of your business, about over 40% now, is, is Asia. Um, I know we you and I talked about this last week, but uh, I want to discuss the, the changing... Um, appetites of, of particularly Chinese consumers. A, this is a, a place where they're seeing some economic pain, um, but how, how are their appetites for, for alcohol changing at the moment? You know, it's, it's, it's when, when uh, the zero COVID strategy was over uh, and after going through a, a normalization phase, we experienced in China exactly what the rest of the world experienced post-pandemic, which is what I call revenge conviviality. Chinese consumers just started to go back out again in the trade, going to see their relatives, their, uh, their friends, uh, a lot of weddings catching up, and so on and so forth. And as you said, it, uh, there, there is a, a little bit of a macroeconomic softness uh, in China right now, which is impacting uh, consumer confidence and therefore a little bit our, our sales. But the underlying fundamentals are there. I mean, consumers want to go out. Uh, Do they want sweeter stuff versus... So in, in China right now, uh, they really love cognac. They really love whiskey, in particular single malt. And Absolute is enjoying huge growth as the cocktail culture develops in China as well. And, and there's a big structural shift which we, we are seeing emerge in China, which are live venues, live entertainment venues, basically bars with, with local bands playing music. And, and Chinese consumers just going there and having a drink or two. What uh, you flagged a decline in, in sales in the current quarter. Um, is that globally? And what do you think is behind that? Are people switching back from spirits to, to beer and wine? Or what's driving it? No, what's driving it is, is basically a softness right now in the quarter in, in China. And by the way, uh, we're, we're lapping uh, a record quarter the previous year. Over the last two quarters in China, we grew 32%. So that's what we're lapping in a soft environment. Uh, number two, we are lapping as well uh, normalization in, in the US, which is by far 
our largest market. So we expect a soft negative, in fact, quarter. So it was tough comps. Mm. Yeah, yeah, tough comps, but also normalization. What about weed? Is that not a big competitor? Because I think a lot of people in this country are drinking less alcohol and, you know, eating more gummies, for example. No, you know, I had the question back in, uh, in fact, in 2018, as cannabis was being legalized in a number of states. Ever since, we've really monitored the situation quite closely. And, and by the way, ever since, uh, the spirit market, um, the, uh, the category in which we operate, premium spirits, have accelerated, as a matter of fact. You know, the underlying trend in the U.S. for spirits is usually 4 to 5% growth. And over the last three years in the U.S., they've grown 8%. Our, our colleagues, really quickly here, our colleagues flagged um, the decline in consumer appetite for alcohol because of GLP-1 drugs, those new weight loss diabetes drugs. Is this on your radar at all? No, everything is on my radar. Just like, <laughs> okay. you, know, uh, you know, six years ago we spoke about cannabis and ever since we've been looking at it closely, monitoring, just making sure. And this is new, uh, so it's, it's, it's still early to... to, to conclude anything uh, uh, tangible about it, but obviously we'll we'll be looking at it closely. Yeah, sure. Alexander, thanks so much for coming in. Really appreciate your time here. Alexander Ricard there, the CEO of Pernod Ricard, the maker of Monkey 47 Schwarzwald Dry Gin. This is Bloomberg. You're listening to The Tape. Catch our live program, Bloomberg Markets, weekdays at 10 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio, the TuneIn app, Bloomberg.com, and the Bloomberg Business app. You can also listen live on Amazon Alexa from our flagship New York station. Just say, Alexa, play Bloomberg 1130. I want to bring in our next guest, Jawad Mian. He is the founder at Stray Reflections, a global macro research firm uh, with an unconventional view towards markets and trading. Jawad, I want to ask you, because we're looking at a pretty negative picture for some of these major tech names, um, NVIDIA, Apple shares, uh, both down you know, roughly in the 3% range, and the NASDAQ really leading our, our losses today. We've heard some question marks about whether the AI hype will live up to the kind of standards that analysts have thought. Is this the end uh, for this tech enthusiasm part of the rally? I don't think so. You know, feeling lost, confused, and uncertain as much a hallmark of investing as is clarity, conviction, and a sense of calm. So this kind of period is quite normal. But what is confusing me actually is not the Nasdaq's 37% rally, nor that inflation has really receded with so little economic pain, and not even that the 10-year bond yield has, are breaking out. The confusing aspect for me is why institutional investors are sitting, still sitting out this bull market, which is why I believe any correction even here will be quite shallow. Jawad, if I'm looking at the 10-year right now, the yield at 4.27%, is there a point that the yields can break out to that we would see things actually materially start to break when it comes to some of these tech-heavy um, stocks and indexes? I think if the yield is rising for the right reasons, which is based on greater economic confidence, a higher real neutral rate, I think equities will do just fine in that scenario. If yields were rising like they did last year, where we were still dealing with inflation uncertainty, weren't sure where the Fed rate hike cycle would end, confusion about the terminal rate, that was what was really hurting stocks. Yeah, it's quite. And it, you know, if if we look at past 
you know, cycles where bonds are rising since the 1970s. What you notice is that those periods are overwhelmingly positive for stocks. So in nine out of those 11 cycles, equities did okay. They did a positive return of around 13% over a 12-month horizon. What happens is tend to contract, but equities do okay because earnings grow fast enough to offset those lower value valuations. So even as bond yields increase from 4 to 4.3 and let's say higher, if we are going to be seeing forward earnings climbing as we are currently with S&P 500's bottom-up EPS estimate next year at 240, that still is a drop for equities. And sorry to our, our radio viewers there, I should have told you that the disembodied voice that you might have just heard before Jawad's was actually that of our uh, stocks reporter, Bailey Lipschultz, uh, who joins us for the next uh, couple of minutes, 15, 20 minutes here. Um, you know, Jawad, one of the big concerns has been the, the health of, of the consumer going forward, responsible for about two thirds of overall economic uh, GDP. Uh, what, what are you reading in the tea leaves here from some of the earnings statements we've had over the last couple of weeks from the data that you're seeing? So I think the big question and concern this year coming into it was that we're everyone was expecting a recession uh, and it hasn't happened yet. The labor market remains quite healthy. And I think what we're trying to understand now is the fact that interest rate sensitivity in the U.S. economy is historically low. And what that means is basically consumers and households really deleveraged post the GFC and then post pandemic given the booster incomes and the further plunge in interest costs you're looking at household um... uh oh it looks like we might have lost Jawad there we'll be back to him uh, soon, as soon as we get him back on the line. Uh, we're looking at a mixed picture in stocks right now. Uh, Dow Jones up about two-tenths of one percent, but we're seeing some uh, weakness in the S&P down about three-tenths of one percent, uh, and the NASDAQ down uh, about one percent. Oh, I look, I believe we have Jawad uh, back with us. Um, you were talking about the some of the pain that the consumer uh, has been feeling, but not necessarily bad for stocks. Just, just I believe we lost you there. So just recap a little bit the last bit that you were saying there. What I was saying was that what we're realizing is that the interest rate sensitivity of the U.S. economy for households and corporates is low. Why consumers have so if you have nominal growth clocking in at around six and seven percent, as has been the case so far this year. Even a Fed funds rate at 5% is not troublesome. It's only when you really have a sharper slowdown in nominal growth and higher interest rate levels that you start to see the consumer really pull back. And that has been the case so far. I don't expect it to be the case for the next six to nine months either. And Jawad, looking at the tape, obviously we're, we're starting September off in the red, seasonally the worst month for major U.S. averages. What can spur investors to put capital back into the market? We have uh, CPI data coming up, coming out in about a week. We have a Fed blackout period. Obviously, there's a lot of macroeconomic concerns as it relates to Apple. What draws investors back into this market? I think it's just a matter of um, understanding flows and, and participation levels, right? So even though recession concerns are fading, what you realize looking at different surveys, like the Bank of America's fund manager survey shows that global equity allocation is still at 11% underweight, which is one and a half standard deviation below the long-term average. You know, the overweight in bonds is a two standard deviation. And so what you're seeing is this currently this understanding that maybe why invest in stocks when bonds are yielding 5% in the short term. But our view is actually bonds are expensive here and stocks could be relatively cheap on a relative basis. 
So I think it's going to be simply an understanding that um, with yields moving higher, institutional investors came into the year quite underweight equities. They expected their private market book exposure will sort of help them with that. But private markets have underperformed, uh, bond yields have risen, and they're realizing that equities underweight is even bigger than they thought. So in conversations, what I pick up and from positioning data is that we're going to see more and more participation flows moving into equities, which will keep any pullback quite shallow before we move uh, from here. Jawad, just quickly, uh, we only have about 30 seconds here, um, but I know that you were a portfolio manager in, in the Middle East recently, or uh, in their past. Um, dramatic rise in the importance of that region has uh, for the rest of the world. Is that something that can continue even if oil doesn't remain $90 a barrel? Yeah, I mean, I think there's plenty of liquidity buffers to be influential. And I think most importantly, what matters from there is just their um, oil production policy, right? So that's the, the real way that you'll see a pass through from a global market perspective. You know, mm-hmm. what is OPEC going to do with oil cuts? And they've already said that they're going to extend their cuts for now. So which keeps oil prices higher in the near term. Yeah, and very interesting, Jawad. That's Jawad Mian. He's the founder of Stray Reflections, the global asset management firm. Thank you for joining us here on Bloomberg with me and Bailey Lipschultz. This is Bloomberg. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Matt Miller. I'm on Twitter at MattMiller1973. And I'm Paul Sweeney. I'm on Twitter at P.T. Sweeney. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide at Bloomberg Radio. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival.